From the Catholic Health Association of the United States headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri, this is Catholic Health USA, the podcast of CHA. Welcome, and I'm your host, Brian Rudin. With me, as always, by my side is Marianne Steiner, the editor of Health Progress. Hi, Marianne. Hey, Brian. Good to see you. Yeah, so this episode, we're going to talk uh, politics and talk uh, uh, public policy with some of our colleagues from Washington, D.C. With us in the webinar room at CHA is Mike Rogers. He's the senior vice president of advocacy and public policy. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good, Brian. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, and with him is Lisa Smith, who is VP of advocacy and public policy in our D.C. office. And the two of you uh, kind of keep us on track with all things advocacy. So welcome. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Brian. So we just had a big election, um, and obviously Catholic Healthcare was watching that pretty closely. So I think, I guess my first question to both of you is, what's the big headline from Tuesday? Well, I think that uh, from my perspective, the big headline is that the Affordable Care Act will continue um, and potentially will be strengthened as we you know, move over this next Congress. Uh, we'll end up at the 115th Congress and move on to the 112th with a very different um, composition in Congress. We now have a divided Congress uh, with the um, Democrats basically controlling the House. It appears that while there may be some election recounts, uh, the the Senate will probably stay in Republican hands. And of course, the administration uh, is Republican. But it will uh, essentially mean that uh, some of the issues that we're very concerned with, the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, issues that relate to Medicaid, the support for uh, programs for the poor um, and the vulnerable um, uh, will be somewhat protected with the with a majority of Democrats in in the House of Representatives. So, Mike, I want to ask you about that. It's such great news that the ACA is safe for a while, but we're also witnessing a lot of attempts from the administration and the Senate to chip away at pieces of the ACA. Um, that are going to deny access or reduce services or what's our plan to to deal with those um, sort of underground covert activities uh, to erode that program yeah I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna turn to Lisa for you know for okay. some thoughts on on this but my sense is that we've got to be very cognizant that the administration will as you say chip away uh, at some of the regulatory areas uh, of the Affordable Care Act. But I think that the Congress is also going to have to take a look at, and the administration is going to take a look at, uh, some of the changes that happened as a result of this election. We saw three states, uh, pretty much red states, that have decided to um, move towards expansion of, of, uh, of Medicaid. So, uh, and I mean, that, that's what gives me some optimism that, uh, uh, that the Affordable Care Act is, is something that uh, people are maybe finally embracing. You know, Mike, I would agree. Uh, you know, the administration has done some significant undermining of the Affordable Care Act, um, whether it was their intention or not their intention to try and get at some of the increasing costs of health insurance coverage. But for instance, the regulation on the short-term health care plans that they've put out really is leaving consumers very vulnerable, um, not realizing that those short-term health care uh, plans that can be sold on the exchanges across the country um, are not required to meet the uh, essential benefit package that is required under the Affordable Care Act, which really leaves patients vulnerable uh, if they have any kind of pre-existing condition or health area that arises. And there are organizations, you know, the main way that, um, you know, we all 
uh, in D.C. comment on regulations, whether we agree with the regulations or not, how they can be tweaked and improved. So, of course, you know, CHA is weighing in where there's opportunities when there's proposed regulations that are detrimental to the Affordable Care Act and to individuals' coverage and access to care. But then there's also the court system where a number of court cases have been brought uh, challenging whether the administration has the authority to put out those regs under the Affordable Care Act. And then, of course, now with uh, Congress changing over for the 116th Congress, I think we'll see, at least in the House of Representatives, pretty strong oversight and questioning of the administration and their actions around uh, things that uh, weaken the Affordable Care Act, the protections that were included in there for patients and beneficiaries. Lisa, I'm glad you mentioned the courts because there's obviously a case we're watching very carefully with uh, Republican attorney generals in Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm not sure a lot of people are really tracking with that and, and what that could do to the ACA. Sure. Uh, the case is called the Texas versus the United States. Um, and in the case, there's 20 state attorney generals that are asking the court essentially to repeal the Affordable Care Act uh, following the removal of the penalty for the ACA's individual mandate uh, that Congress enacted back in December of 2017 in the tax bill. Um, unfortunately, the, the administration um, was unwilling to completely defend uh, the Affordable Care Act um, and specifically said it would not defend key provisions in the Affordable Care Act that were threatened by the lawsuit, such as guaranteed coverage, um, regardless of the impact on individuals with pre-existing conditions, which, if that was repealed, would add millions more to the ranks of the uninsured. So CHA, along with the other hospital associations, has filed a brief in that case, um, and that case has been heard by the district court, and we're all waiting to see exactly how that judge rules. But either way, no matter how he rules, we do expect that the case would be repealed. Yeah, that could happen anytime. I mean, somebody could be listening to this and the, the decision could have already come down. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm curious about, and I mentioned this earlier when we were together, um, you saw health care really, particularly among Democratic candidates, be a major issue that was, you know, pre-existing conditions. We, kept, we saw a lot of ads about that. Um, I guess my question to both of you is, Healthcare in general, where is that? What's the mood in Washington about fixing the ACA? And then in, in light of entitlement reform, you know, you've got, again, a Republican majority in the House that is leaving, but that's been sort of their mantra is we need to get costs for not only Medicaid, but Medicare and Social Security under control. We just heard uh, Senate Leader Mitch McConnell mention that a few weeks ago. So from a general sense, if you look to the next Congress, entitlement reform and health care in general, how much of a priority in light of everything else going on in the world is that going to be? Yeah, I, I think that uh, part of it will be, you know, certainly would be a priority, at least for uh, members of Congress to take a look at how uh, we might be able to control some of the expenditures um, in these programs. Is there any kind of a redesign of that? But there's always a danger when you open up something to um, uh, improvements, for instance, the Affordable Care Act, that other changes can be made that may not be uh, as uh, uh, as positive in some respects. So there's a, there's a danger when when a bill like that would go to the you know go to the floor. You know my sense is that if you take a look at the certainly the the post election polls and even even pre election, I mean healthcare 
was the number one priority among Democratic voters. Uh, and while the budget tended to be the uh, number one priority among Republican voters, uh, health care was still very high, you know, in terms of uh, what they viewed as overall importance to the to the country. So so I think health care uh, and the need for health care or what we believe is that health care is a basic human right. Uh, is is something that's basically coming through with the with the with the general public, and I think that's very very positive. Yeah. What do you see? We've got, we've got a divided Congress. Uh, we were just mentioning some of the administrative uh, actions that, that the Trump administration can take to add barriers, let's say, for people to uh, get on Medicaid, or if they're on Medicaid, perhaps kick them off because of drug testing or. Um, you know, limiting the benefits. Does does Congress have a way to check that, or is that going to be difficult with a divided Congress, with a Republican Senate and a, and a House uh, controlled by Democrats, of coming to some consensus to say, no, we, we want to have you know more people be able to access Medicaid because some of the reasons that we were just discussing about the ability to have people be healthy so they can be part of the workforce. How do you see Congress checking, or or will they check? some of these administrative rules that are going into effect. Yeah, I fully anticipate. And, you know, again, I'm going to turn to Lisa, who probably has more expertise than I do on this. But I fully anticipate that the House will uh, hold a whole series of uh, oversight hearings, you know, on certain regulatory issues that, you know, that are being proposed. Um, uh, and we'll be looking at the, the, at areas where the, where the Affordable Care Act is working. But by the same token, maybe looking at areas where it can be improved. Yeah, I would agree, Mike. I, I think that uh, the House very much, as part of the ACA oversight, are going to look specifically at the Medicaid waivers that the administration has begun granting, especially around the work requirements. There's some real uh, court challenges around that, whether the administration had the authority to do that. But I also think you're going to see you know, the Democratic House of Representatives uh, in the new Congress uh, take a hard look at, at what's been proposed and whether that is within the administration's purview to even grant those type of, of waivers. Every commentary that I listened to and every poll that I read about talked about this election being so unique um, with the number of uh, sort of outsider influences and the um, the strong presence of women and other minorities um, that have that have pulled together. Is that going to change at all the way CHA does its advocacy? Is there anything that we can learn from that or decide to do differently that we're going to be dealing with people who may not be traditional politicians and traditional statesmen? Well, I want to add, add to that, too. You, you, Mike, you mentioned that there's a lot of healthcare professionals that got elected, too. So how does that factor in as well? Uh, I'm looking at that as an opportunity, quite frankly. You know, it's interesting to see that uh, um, uh, Donna Shalala, former HHS Secretary Donna Shalala, is now Congresswoman Donna Shalala from, you know, from Florida. And uh, she clearly has, I, I would fully anticipate that uh, she will be on certainly one of the health committees, uh, the Ways and Means Committee um, or Energy and Commerce. Uh, but here's a person that brings a tremendous amount of knowledge to this. So my sense is that, uh, again, uh, the way in which healthcare polled with many of the Democrats that were successful, uh, I think that there's going to be a very open, you know, opportunity. It, at one point, there was hesitancy, you know, to say, will this, you know, will this draw us away from being elected? I don't think that that hesitancy is there. I think that people are embracing this. 
and as I say, I think that you're going to see uh, some um, people who were traditionally uh, with the, the GOP uh, coming back and saying, yeah, we've, we've got to we've got to improve this. But, you know, it's something that's going to be part of, you know, the fabric of, of health care in this country. So, you know, I would agree. I, I think it's a great opportunity, um, both with all the fresh faces coming into Congress um, but also, when you have a split Congress, it, it does create an opportunity to find some bipartisan, bicameral opportunities to make incremental improvements um, in the services. And I, you know, I think it pairs right along with our overarching agenda, advocacy agenda, which it has been for over 100 years, is affordable and accessible health care for all. Um, and paying special attention to the poor and vulnerable is, you know, figuring out how to make that happen so that folks have access to affordable health care, which is not a Republican or a Democratic right. issue. It's it's a united country issue. And so, you know, I, I think given the priority in the election of health care, it creates a, a, a great opportunity. Yeah, and I'll make a plug for our Medicaid Makes It Possible campaign. We're going to continue to raise our voices uh, to let policymakers and the public know how important Medicaid is and how many people, you know, we're, we're estimating about 75 million people by the end of this year will be covered by Medicaid. And these are veterans. These are a lot of senior citizens, half the babies born in this country on Medicaid. So that's something we're going to continue to uh, speak up for and appreciate all the work you guys do in Washington on behalf of the membership. Let me switch gears a little bit. So we've been talking a lot about the ACA and Medicaid. Uh, but there's other specific legislation that we are also interested in Catholic health care, one of them being uh, it's the Pachita, the Palliative Care and Hospice Education and Training Act. I suspect a lot of our listeners probably don't know much about that. So, Lisa, can you share a little bit about that? With that we've, we're in a little bit of a home stretch for that piece of legislation because if, if nothing gets passed here in the next couple of months, uh, it's going to have to reset. But that's important to us uh, from our standpoint of, of end-of-life care. Absolutely, Brian. So, you know, palliative care is a comprehensive team approach to ensure patients that are diagnosed with serious or life-threatening issues, um, illnesses, have the wraparound services in addition to their primary physician or surgeon that they're working with. Um, it's a physician specialist, a, a nurse or a nurse practitioner, a caseworker, and usually a chaplain as well, that provides that, that wraparound services and support um, as a care planning team for both the patient as well as for the patient's family to try and relieve the stress and pain and anxiety and unknowing that comes with living with a serious illness and really helps folks live, you know, in lots of instances, longer lives because there's less stress associated with the illness when you have that kind of care team. So the problem is, is that we don't have enough trained staff to fill all the positions on our care teams. So we have band together with 50 other organizations, and including the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, um, to really push this legislation through that provides um, additional funding for grants and training programs for cross-training physicians and nurses. Um, it also provides research grants so that we can identify best practices for caring for patients, and then also money to raise awareness both among the medical community and our facilities, 
and other facilities, but also to the general public because there's a real um, misunderstanding or even unknown um, aspect across our country about the importance of palliative care and what that care team can provide for parents, patients with serious illnesses. So we have, we've been working on this legislation for about five years and we finally successfully have gotten it passed. It's completely bipartisan um, and it was approved by the House of Representatives in July and we're now pushing hard to make sure that senators are educated and we can get it through the Senate Health Health Committee, Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, um, and through the Senate floor and to the president's desk before the Congress uh, adjourns for this session. That would be wonderful. It would be. It would be a significant accomplishment, uh, not only on the part of, I think, our organization, which has always supported palliative, you know, uh, palliative care, but as Lisa pointed out, uh, 50 other organizations, national organizations that are not necessarily political organizations. They're, they're patient-centered organizations that, that uh, feel very strongly about this. And it is such an important um, element of healthcare in this country. So it would be a great achievement if we can get this through in the next couple of months uh, in the, you know, in the Senate. I think there'll be great celebration uh, uh, abounding because of that. So We have so many questions to ask you, and we have limited time, but I think there are two that we still want to grill you on. One is I'm going to ask you about PACE because I've just commissioned a, an article for Health Progress on PACE 2.0, and um, I'd like to hear how we're moving forward on that. Well, I, yeah, PACE is a program for uh, all-inclusive care for the elderly, uh, and um, it's it's a program that has been part of our advocacy agenda. It's obviously, uh, I think, as we begin to take a look at um, the preferences that people have today, um, the need for um, uh, a sensible approach to long-term care uh, with the population aging, obviously, um, with, uh, you know, comorbidities and things of this nature, PACE just is such a um, uh, great alternative to um, working with the very frail elderly, people who have, as I say, multiple chronic conditions, et cetera, uh, to allow them to stay in the community uh, and be supported through a kind of a daycare model system of going to, you know, sort of a PACE-type organization. Um, As I say, it's been part of our um, advocacy agenda and support for, you know, for that uh, and we're seeing a change. I think we're seeing a change within uh, the senior population itself. Uh, they'd rather stay in their own homes. Uh, they'd rather be supported in some respects. Uh, frequently today, you know, we have families that uh, um, are in other parts of the country. Uh, and having a PACE program uh, that uh, provides oversight for, you know, frail elderly, these would be people who would normally qualify uh, to be served in a in a skilled nursing facility. They have to be skilled nursing facility qualified, but they don't need to go into a skilled nursing facility. They can be supported, as I say, in the community uh, by this pro- PACE program. They, they'll have uh, the, uh, the health care, you know, the oversight. You know, many of the PACE programs have physicians, nurses, social workers, and others on staff that have helped these people, helped individuals that have uh, as I say, these frail conditions to to maintain their independence. And, and I think that that's what people want. They want to maintain independence in, 
in uh, old age. Uh, uh, so I think it's a really, really vital program for... Uh, what are uh, the obstacles? I just don't understand what... For example, there are no PACE programs in the state of Missouri. Well, you know, PACE is a... You know, it's, it's a kind of a collaboration between um, uh, the, the state and the federal government uh, and, uh, you know, trying to look at how the funding works, you know, in, in regards to this. These are... These are kind of a capitated programs uh, for you know, for older individuals. Uh, so that's a combination of Medicare, Medicaid program funds that go to support those individuals. And I think that there's a, uh, there may be also a woodwork effect that you know if you expand PACE programs, everybody's going to be um, um, applying for PACE. And, and and what I would say to that is great. You know, I think that this is great alternative to what. Uh, the cost of long-term care would be in a skilled nursing, you know, a skilled nursing facility. So uh, I, I just think that there are political obstacles from a funding perspective that uh, uh, that make it difficult. You know, the state has got to come together with the PACE program, with the federal government towards, a, you know, kind of a joint uh, uh, effort to fund and, and uh, support these programs. Thanks. I, I just didn't understand that before, why it, why it can be so strong in some places and not exist in other places. Yeah. One other quick topic, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here. Uh, Lisa, 340B, the drug discount program um, that a lot of our hospitals rely on, particularly those that are in rural areas and safety net hospitals, uh, a lot of effort um, under the Republican-controlled Congress and the administration to really curtail that, what do we see in the new Congress uh, around 340B? You know, Brian, there's there's been a great effort by the um, hospital associations, led by the American Hospital Association, to really um, do a better job at educating members of Congress in both the House and Senate um, about the benefits and the services that the 340B discount drug program allows safety net hospitals to continue to provide in their communities. Um, in order to even qualify for the 340B discount drug program, um, hospitals have to serve a disproportionate share of low-income patients, of either Medicaid patients or low-income Medicare patients. And typically, in order to meet that threshold, it has to be about 25, 27% of your caseload. And so there's been a lot of questions about, um, you know, how, what kind of services hospitals have been providing that have been able to purchase drug outpatient discount drugs um, and the savings that they receive from that. So, you know, we've we've been leaders in the community benefit area and really highlighting the types of services that we provide for our communities, especially the low-income communities. And so we're going to continue to do that education in Congress. I think with the changeover from um, Republican and Democratic control in the House, a lot of it was being driven in the House. I think the Senate is is clearly um, interested in the transparency piece, but we think by moving forward in that direction and bringing those stories and examples and accountability to the program to educate Congress that, you know, we'll be in, in much better understanding uh, moving forward. Great. Thanks for the update. No, thanks for the, all the updates. I know there's a, a lot always going on in Washington. Uh, again, on our team out in D.C. keeps on top of things, and so I know our members appreciate that. And, Mike, I want to uh, share appreciation. You are getting ready to retire, correct? I am. Good for you. Thank so you're you. going to miss out on all this fun. But um, can you just briefly share maybe um, 
you know, you've been with CHA 18 years. What, what's your fondest memory of, of your work in advocacy? Well, it's it, you know, it's great. You're, you're right. The, the beginning of, uh, of, April, or, of October, uh, I celebrated 18 years here within uh, Catholic Healthcare, and uh, uh, it's probably. Um, I, I want to say it's a job that I've relished, but it's really not been a job. It's really been, in some respects, a a calling. And to be able to um, sort of combine uh, uh, your uh, hopefully work expertise or the things that you have developed over the years um, with, you know, sort of commitment to the faith um, uh, focus of of, uh, Catholic health care has just been really, really rewarding. I think Perhaps the fondest memories of the people that have had an opportunity to to work with. Uh, I think about the early pioneers uh, in Catholic healthcare, uh, the sisters who created uh, so many of these wonderful hospitals, and now you know major health systems throughout the country. And their continued commitment to to the vulnerable, to the poor, um, is something that I will relish um, always. Uh, um, and uh, as I I think I've mentioned. Um, uh, the, the one thing that I will miss uh, about retirement is the, just the wonderful people that I've had the opportunity to uh, to work with over the years. So, uh, but I'll be keeping an eye on Catholic healthcare for sure. Great. Thanks, Mike. It's uh, it's been my privilege to work with you for five years. I, I relish that too. Thank you, Marianne. And thank you both for spending time, Mike Rogers, uh, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy, and soon to be. Uh, what, on the golf course, on the beach? Uh, uh, so. <laughs> gainfully unemployed. And Lisa Smith, our Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy, thank you both for taking some time out so quickly after the election to give us a, a nice overview of uh, what we can expect with the new Congress. Marianne, as always, thank you for joining us. I'm Brian Rudin, and this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>